0: We ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. Well, Father in heaven, we thank you for your great goodness to us in giving us uh, a savior and for giving us good news of what he has accomplished. And we praise you for giving us your word as well, Lord, and the promises that go with the preaching of your gospel. And so, Lord, I pray that you would make me faithful to proclaim your word and that you would make our ears faithful to hear the gospel, the voice of your son, our Shepherd and that we would respond as your sheep. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last little while, the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ is something that that we have really been looking forward to with great anticipation and affection. Now, this is something that we are always to look forward to, but there are things that happen in our lives, sometimes things that everybody notices, and sometimes things that only we notice that cause us to long for the full flourishing of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it is our sure hope that because the Lord kept his promise to come the first time, to suffer for his people, we can be confident that he will certainly come in glory to fulfill his reign over all things. Now, Christ reigns now, of course. He is Lord of all creation. He is exalted by the Father. Having taken on human flesh, he is now both God and man, and he is the first man and the only man to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given. And so he reigns from heaven and is very near, and he is also very present. And he is with His people now, by the gift of his Holy Spirit, he is Emmanuel, he is with us. And so he is not a distant ruler. He is omnipotent and he is omnipresent. He is everywhere at all times. And he carefully and lovingly, and he certainly brings, he certainly reigns over all things with a rod of iron, but also a sympathetic and affectionate heart for the people whom he gave his life to bring to himself. And so his current reign is our comfort here and now, but it is his future reign that is our full and sure future hope, a world where his reign is not even contested, and which is loved and enjoyed by all his people. That throne, it is... Is, this reign is divine. The Lord Jesus, he reigns as God, but it's also a human throne, a, the throne which the Lord gave to David, the, the Lord Jesus' ancestor. And today we're going to look at the coronation of the first king to sit on Christ Jesus' David throne. And so brothers and sisters, I want you to see and to drink deeply from the comforts and the glory of being the people of the Messiah, being the people of the Lord's anointed king, being the people of the king to whom the Lord has given all authority and responsibility for the life and joy and blessing and holiness of his citizens, his people, his sheep. And this is going to give us a glimpse of the sweetness of the rain of Christ Jesus this is going to help us know why Jesus Christ is the greatest gift that the father could give to us it's going to help us to rejoice and to be calmed and comforted by his rule and his reign and his power and his authority because He has not left us to our own devices He's not left us to chart our own course and be masters of our own destiny. He has given us an anointed king, a Messiah, so that the glory and reign of God would be the sweet joy of his people. It would be his responsibility. And so he's given us a king to fill, not just to sit on the throne of David, but ultimately, when all is said and done, he will be the one to fill the throne that David once sat on. He's given us a king to lead and guide and protect and secure us. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 11. 1 Chronicles chapter 11. I'm going to start with our first point, And that is that David becomes the covenant head of all Israel. By the word of God, David becomes the covenant head of all Israel by the word of God. So we're going to read First Chronicles chapter 11. We're just going to read the first three verses to begin with. First Chronicles 11, 1 to 3. Then all Israel gathered together to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, even when Saul was king, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord your God said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over my people Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel, according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. First, we we are reminded here, we get this glimpse that, that the people of Israel are a covenant people. They are people of covenant with the Lord. That They were the covenant people of the Lord. God had sworn a covenant to their ancestor Abraham. And he would, this covenant included these great promises that he would make his family a great nation and he would bring them into the land of Canaan. And through his family, the nation would fill all family, it would, would bless all families of the earth. God covenanted with Abraham that he would be his God and that Abraham and his seed would be the people of God. And this was not just by an idea. This is not by any sort of merit, but this is by covenant. The people of Israel were a people of covenant. The second thing we are reminded of here is that the, the people of Israel are now given to a king. They're given to a king who would help them in their covenant responsibilities to the Lord. They would help them to be the people of God, to walk as his covenant people, to walk as God's children. That was the anointed king's responsibility to help Israel keep covenant. But it was not only to help Israel keep her covenant responsibility, Giving David to the people of Israel was one of the ways which God kept his covenant promises to Israel. This was Him fulfilling His promises to them through the reign of King David. The anointed king, and we've seen in our previous sermons, we see that anointed essentially just means Christ or Messiah. And so we see this little C Christ or little M Messiah. Now, he was to be the focal point of the covenant between God and his people. He's to shepherd them in faithfulness to the Lord. And through, and through him, the Lord worked to accomplish his promises, these covenant promises, to make them a great nation, to give them the land, to have peace on all sides and to have rest in this flourishing land. The people recognize that David has been given to them by the Lord. Not just by coincidence, we see that they're referencing the fact that God called him. It was by the word of the Lord. It was God's choice that he would be their king. They also realize that this is more than just mere kingship. Now, it's not less than kingship. He is more than just a king in terms of the world's idea of a king. You see this in verse 1, did you notice, where it says, behold, we are your bone and flesh. That's a phrase that is used to say that a person is your kinsman, your relative, your family, and that was the phrase that Laban, hundreds of years earlier, Laban said this to Jacob, his nephew, when he came from afar to visit him. He was essentially welcoming him his family, saying, we are belong together, we are one. But here, though, when the people say it to David, it it has greater meaning because they were all brothers. They were all Israelites. For them to say, we are your bone and flesh, to say that we are your relatives, they were all relatives. This is taking on its richer meaning that this phrase has in Scripture. Scripture. It's a statement about who they were to him in a way that's not just family. And so we can see the sweetness of this phrase that they're saying if we skip ahead to chapter 12, verse 18. Chapter 12, verse 18, we see this sense in its fullness. So one of the mighty men who rallied around David to support his messiahship speaks a prophecy by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here it is. Then the spirit clothed Amasai, chief of the 30, and he said, listen to this, we are yours, David, and with you, O son of Jesse. Peace, peace to you and peace to your helpers, for your God helps you. We can see that this means that they they realized that they belonged to David. They are his. They have been given to him by the Lord. He to lead they to follow. He was now responsible for them. The Lord put them under David's care. And that reminds us of the first time that these words were spoken in the Bible. You remember, the first time that those words were spoken in the Bible was from the lips of Adam. After God put Adam into his sleep and, take, and took one of his ribs and fashioned Eve... When he awakes, he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so this is clearly taking on its, uh, more than just saying this is just a close relative. There was a covenant union between Adam and Eve, a covenant union never to be broken. And that union of marriage, that covenant is a picture of the relationship between the Lord and his people. He's the head and his people are the body. Now, God was always Israel's head. He had always been her shepherd. He is always the king, but he then now gives to her a king who's also her kinsman who's also a man, who is also an Israelite. Now he can lead her in covenant faithfulness. He can help her to keep the covenant and who God will actually use to keep God's end of the covenant. And what the anointed king, David, and his heirs will do will be counted to Israel. His righteousness, if he were to reign in righteousness, it will bring glory and blessing. But his sin would actually bring curses on her. And that's going to be very clear in chapter 21. When David's sinful census brings pestilence, punishment upon the whole of God's people. Now, we saw that Boaz, a few generations earlier, one of David's great-grandfathers, Boaz was the kinsman-redeemer of the house of Elimelech, one family in Israel. And what he did would count for the family, restore what they had lost or squandered, and it would count as if they themselves themselves had done it. And David was the kinsman-redeemer, not just of one family, but of all Israel. We see this phrase over and over again in these two chapters that we're going to be reading. All Israel, all Israel, all Israel. He is the royal kinsman redeemer. That's his responsibility. His charge from the Lord to lead Israel in covenant love to the Lord. And God gives gives him power and authority and the responsibility to do this. His reign was for the glory of God and the blessing of the beloved covenant People, now, brothers and sisters, it is this throne that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David, inherits to be the covenant head of the people of God. He took on flesh, being God from eternity, he took on flesh to become our kinsmen. And the Lord gave to him a people. He gave people to him as a possession He gave us, the church, to the Lord Jesus as a possession to accomplish what we could not accomplish and to do it on our behalf. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him to reign over all things for the good of the church. And the Lord Jesus, he kept the covenant for us. He kept the law of God on your behalf and then he died for your sins, your curse for breaking the covenant. He died for that on the cross. He took responsibility for your righteousness and he even took responsibility for your curse. David was the first to reign on the throne of David. But the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who would fill the throne, not merely reign on it. If the people of Israel were blessed by the righteous reign of King David, and they were, consider the blessings that are for the people under the headship of David's greater son. A perfectly righteous, spotless, and pure covenant head. Israel rejoiced to have David as their head. And so brothers and sisters, if your faith, is in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your head, and you are his body. His righteousness counted for you, and your sin counted to him in his reign for your good. Second point. David establishes and builds the stronghold of God's people. Now, the first responsibility that this author brings to our attention is the responsibility to establish a stronghold for God's people. We can see this in verses 4 to 9 of chapter 11. Let's read this. Chapter 11, 1 Chronicles 11, 4 to 9. And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, that is, Jabus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land, the inhabitants of Jabez said to David, you will not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. David said, whoever strikes the Jebusites first shall be chief and commander. And Joab, the son of Azariah, went up first, so he became chief. And David lived in the stronghold. Therefore, it was called the city of David. And he built the city wall around from Milo in complete circuit. And Joab repaired the rest of the city. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. So one of David's, one of, one of the anointed kings, the little M, Messiah of Israel, the man of God's own choosing, one of his responsibilities acting as the head of God's people was to destroy the enemy stronghold and then to establish a stronghold of the people of God. And Jerusalem was that for the people of Israel. It was the center of Israel, the central gathering place of all the people of Israel, the place where they would assemble, gather as one people. But it was also in this passage we see it's Function as a stronghold. It was a gift of safety for the people of the Lord, a gift that he gave to the people through the Messiahship of David to establish for them a stronghold. It's a gift, it is very practically a defense from their enemies a place to run to for those who were in the surrounding towns. It was a city established as the city that represented not the strength of Israel, but the strength and protection of God himself. People in Israel and looking toward Israel would be reminded of the strength of the Lord their God. And they could be calmed when they think of their enemies it would be God's gift that they would be able to look to Jerusalem and be reminded of the strength of the Lord from her against her enemies. Now, later the people of Israel would turn it into an idol, and they would think that they would be safe in Jerusalem even if they rejected the lordship of God, but that was never the intention of the Lord. It was a place which represented his strength and protection, which God himself was for Israel. And this was the Messiah's responsibility. To be a good Messiah, this is what David would do, to bless the people of God as part of their covenant with the Lord. So Jesus Christ, David's greater heir, would himself be that for the people of God. But he would also establish the church as a new Jerusalem, a place where that would be a haven for his dear saints, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells his people that they are the light of the world and that a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And Jerusalem was a city set on a hill. And it was a good and great city and a a good and wonderful gift from from the Lord through the Messiah to his dear people. And the Lord Jesus will build the church safe from the attacks of the devil and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, will not prevail against its gates. Now in the book of Revelation, the church is described in the same way that the new Jerusalem is described a bride adorned for her husband. Now, that's led some to believe that the church will ultimately replace Jerusalem as the city of God in the new heaven and earth. But it's led others to believe that there will be a holy city named Jerusalem in the new heaven and earth, as well as the church. And that the boundaries of Jerusalem will expand far beyond what they did in David's day because they won't be big enough. And there is merit to both conclusions and both agree on the main point here. Either way, you can see that the Lord's protection and care over his people is something that they would be able to see and know. A gift from the Lord through his Messiah was a place of refuge, a show of God's strength to care for and protect and gather his people. That brings us to our third point. After the Messiah has been, has, has been anointed as the covenant head of God's people, and after he has now established a place of stronghold and refuge for them as part of his covenant responsibilities, we see a lot of strength and might going around, being thrown around in these next uh, chapters. And that brings us to our third point, which is this strength is meant to be used in service to the Lord's anointed king. And we're going to read here a favorite passage of young boys for ages, the accounts of David's mighty men. Now, our own culture hates God's design for men and has tried to shame men for it. At the same time, the culture can't help themselves from making lots of money from it, from movies. They, they can't decide if they love it or if it's shameful. Now, this isn't to say, this, this, this is not saying that violence and power and risk in your life are automatically or even usually godly. Most often, they're actually used in ungodly ways. We saw last week in our flyover over Israel's history that a recurring and important note that the chronicler wanted us to notice is the existence of Israel of mighty and valiant men who risk their lives for the protection of the people of God. And now we can see that these men, this gift of biblical manliness is not good in and of itself, but it is praiseworthy when used in the service of the Lord's anointed king. So let's read. 1 Chronicles 11, chapter, or chapter 11, verse 10, and we're going to read all the way to verse 37 of chapter 12. A beautiful passage looking at these events in history and what true honor is. Now, these are the chiefs of David's mighty men who gave him strong support in his kingdom together with all Israel to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. This is an account of David's mighty men. Jashabim, the Hakmonite, was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 300 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite. He was with David at past Daman, when the Philistines were gathered there for battle, there was a plot of ground full of barley, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and killed the Philistines, and the Lord saved them by a great victory. Three of the 30 men, three of the 30 chief men, went down to the rock to David at the cave of Adullam, when the army of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Riphaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. But David would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me before my God that I should do this. Shall I drink the lifeblood of these men? For at the risk of their lives they brought it. Therefore he would not drink it. These things did the three mighty men. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, was chief of the thirty and he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander, but did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzil, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two heroes of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a man of great stature, five cubits tall. The Egyptian had in his hand a spear like a weaver's beam. But Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. The mighty men were Asael, the brother of Joab, Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Shamath of Herod, Helez, the Pelonite, Ira, the son of Ikesh of Toa, Tekoa, Abiezer, the Anathoth, Sibachai, the Hushathite, Eli, the Ahohite, Merhiah of Netaphath, Heled, the son of Bena, the son of Netaphath. Ithai, the son of Rubei, of Gibeah, of the people of Benjamin. Benaiah, of Pirithon. Hurai, of the brooks of Gash. Ibiel the Erbathite. Asmaveth, of Baharam. Iliaba, uh, the Shelbonite Hashem, the Gizanite. Jonathan, the son of Shaggy, the Herorite. Ahiam, the son of Zash. Sakur the Mecherathite, Ahijah, the Pelonite, Hezro of Carmel, Nari, the son of Ezboi, Joel, the brother of Nathan, Mibha, the son of Hagri, Zelech, the Ammonite, Nari, Nahari of Beroth, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Ira, the Ithrite, Gareb the Ithrite, Uriah, the Hittite, Zabad, the son of Ally, Adina, the son of Shiza the Reubenite, a leader of the Reubenites, and thirty with him. Hanan, the son of Mecca, and Joshaphat, the Mithnite, Uzziah, the Ashterethite, Shammah, and Jeiel, the sons of Hotham, and Hotham, the Ararite. Arorite. Arorite. Jediel, the son of Shimri, and Joah, his brother, the Tizite. Eliel, the Mahavite, and Jerabai and Joshua, the sons of Ilnam, and Ithmah the Moabite, Eliel, and Obed, and Jesseel the Mezobite. Now, these are the men who came to David at Ziklag. While he could not move about freely because of Saul, the son of Kish. And they were among the mighty men who helped him in war. They were bowmen and could shoot arrows and sling stones with either the right or left hand. They were Benjamite, Saul's kinsmen. The chief was Ahizer, then Joash, both sons of Shema and of Gibeah. And also Jiziel and Pelet, the sons of Amazaveth, Barakah, Jehueth, Jehu of Anathoth, Ismaiah of Gibeon, a mighty man among the 30, and a leader over the 30, Jeremiah and Jeziel, Johanan, Josabeth of Gideah, Gedera, Eluzi, Jeremoth, Beliah, Sheremiah, Jephatiah, the Heraphite, Elkanah, Ishiah, Azarel, Jozer, and Jashabim, the Korahites, and Jola and Zabat, Zebadiah, the sons of Jerahem of Gidor. From the Gadites there went over to David uh, at the strong, there went over to David at the stronghold in the wilderness, mighty and experienced warriors, experts with shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions and who were swift as gazelles upon the mountains. Ezer the chief, Obadiah second, Eliab the third, Mishmana the fourth, Jeremiah fifth, Atai sixth, Eliel seventh, Johanan eighth, Elzbad Elzabad Ninth, Jeremiah 10th, Machbinai 11th, these Gadites were officers of the army. The least was a match for a hundred men, and the greatest for a thousand. These are the men who crossed the Jordan in the first month when it was overflowing all its banks and put to flight all those in the valley to the east and to the west. And some of the men of Benjamin and Judah came to the stronghold to David. David went out to meet them and said to them, if you have come to me in friendship to help me, my heart will be joined to you. But if to betray me to my adversaries, although there is no wrong in my hands, then may the God of our fathers see and rebuke you. Then the spirit spirit clothed Amasai, chief of the 30, and he said, we are yours, O David, and with you, O son of Jesse, Peace, peace to you, and peace to your helpers, for your God helps you. Then David received them and made them officers of his troops. Some of the men of Manasseh deserted to David when he came with the Philistines for the battle against Saul, yet he did not help them, for the rulers of the Philistines took counsel and sent to him, sent him away, saying, at peril to our heads, he will desert uh, to his master Saul. As he went to Ziklag, these men of Manasseh deserted to him, Adnah, Jozebed, Jediel, Michael, Jozebed, Elihu, Zilitha, chiefs of thousands in Manasseh. They helped David against the band of raiders, for they were all mighty men of valor and were commanders in the army. From day to day, men came to David to help him until there was a great army, like an army of God. These are the numbers of the divisions of the armed troops who came to David in Hebron to turn the kingdom of Saul over to him, according to the word of the Lord. The men of Judah bearing shield and spear were 6,800 armed troops. Of the Simeonites, men mighty men of valor for war, 7,100. Of the Levites, 4,600. The prince Jehoiada of the house of Aaron and with him, 3,700. Zadok, a young man mighty in valor and 22 commanders from his own father's house. Of the Benjamites, the kinsmen of Saul, 3,000 of whom the majority had to that point kept their allegiance to the house of Saul. Of the Ephraimites, 20,800 mighty men of valor, famous men in their father's houses, of the half-tribe of Manasseh, 18,000 who were expressly named to come to make David king, of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command, of Zebulun, 50,000 seasoned troops equipped for battle with all the weapons of war to help David with singleness of purpose, of Naphtali, A 1,000 commanders with whom there were 37,000 men armed with shield and spear. Of the Danites, 28,600 men equipped for battle. Of Asher, 40,000 seasoned troops ready for battle. Of the Reubenites and Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh from from beyond the Jordan, 120,000 men with all the weapons of war. All these men of war arrayed in battle. Order came to Hebron with full intent to make David king over all Israel. Likewise, all the rest of Israel were a single mind to make David king, and they were there with David for three days, eating and drinking, for their brothers had made preparation for them. we have already read too far. Now these men, first of all, these mighty men, were gifts to the people of God from the Lord their God. The people had reason to rejoice that they had such men to protect the people of God. It was not a shame but an honor from the Lord. Their strength was meant to be used, and we can see over and over the purpose of their strength, single-mindedly, was to be used in service of the Lord's anointed king. In this case, the little M Messiah to work to accomplish the Lord's goals and charge to that king, David. Now, that doesn't mean that the Lord is in need of the strength of men. But he does choose to use these earthy means to accomplish his purposes so that he would get the glory, but that his people would be able to share in the honor of that glory. And so these men were given the joy of using their strength which was given to them by the Lord. The honor of using that strength in the name of the Lord and his Messiah. That is a joy and an honor. Given the opportunity and the delight to show that their lives were not as precious as the glory of the Lord and his Messiah and the protection of his people. That's, that's demonstrated so clearly in that event where David merely says in passing, how he'd really love a drink of Bethlehem water. Their lives were not as precious as the honor of their king, who was not just any king, but it was the Lord's anointed. That's a glorious story, which these men are honored for centuries and millennia, and even eternity. It highlights the glory of using strength which the Lord gives you in the service of the Lord's Messiah. Brothers and sisters, physical protection, using swords and weapons to defend and protect your country and women and children, uh, this is still a good and honorable and praiseworthy thing. It's something we ought to expect of our sons, that they would stand between physical threats between them and their children and their wives, to use whatever strength God would give, maybe a little, maybe a lot, to protect their families. However, the Lord does not permit that the honor of the church or even of Christ would now be protected by the sword. We now honor him by laying down our lives for the gospel, not by taking lives for the gospel. The protection of the church, the people of the Messiah, is a different kind of protection during this age of redemptive history. So the kind of courage and strength and service of the church is now of a different kind. The men of courage who protect the church from the attacks of the devil and guard the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great and final Messiah, it's one where men laid down their lives to guard the church's doctrine and holiness. The sword these men use is the word of God. Now men for thousands of years now have laid down their lives to guard the precious church and the glory of the Messiah, Jesus. Men who would not not stop preaching even at cost of their lives. We think of the apostles. We think of Stephen, the first martyr. We think of Justin Martyr. Men who would not stop preaching even at cost of their lives. Men who confronted false teachers at the cost of their families, the cost of their freedom, the cost of their jobs. Pastors who refused to give in to false teaching and who were then kicked out of their churches and who had to scramble to provide for their young families. These men are who we ought to have as role models for our sons, because it is glorious. Notice how the Lord's anointed king, though, responds when these men risk their lives for his honor. He's touched. He's overwhelmed with love and affection. He can't even drink that Bethlehem water that they risked their lives to bring him. He values their lives. He's no stupid, selfish king who considers the lives lost for his honor to be worthless pawns lost. He values the lives and he considers the risk of their lives worthy of being called sacrifices to the Lord God. As it was with David, it is even greater with the Lord Jesus, his heir. The lives of the people of the great Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, he considers your lives precious. And he considers and he counts whatever costs or risks that you pay for the honor of his name and glory and the care of his people, he counts them as precious sacrifices and he will not forget them. No matter what kind of strength the Lord gives you, it is most gloriously used in the service of the Lord's Messiah. That was true when David was the Messiah. It is especially true now when Jesus Christ is the great and final Messiah. Brings us to our fourth point. Joy is the result of God establishing David's throne. Joy is the result of God establishing David's throne. I want you to see the sweet result of God bringing his people a covenant head, a messianic king. I want you to see the sweet joy of his covenant people. We'll begin at verse 38 of chapter 12. All these men of war, arrayed in battle uh, battle order, came to Hebron with full intent to make David king over all Israel. Likewise, all the rest of Israel were of a single mind to make David king. And they were there with David for three days, eating and drinking, for their brothers had made preparation for them. And also their relatives, from as far as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali, came bringing food on donkeys and camels and on mules and on oxen, abundant provisions of flour, cakes of figs, clusters of raisins and wine and oil, oxen and sheep, for there was joy in Israel. Rich provisions of food for feasting. Over and over again in these two chapters, I wonder if you noticed how many times the phrase, single mind, one heart occurs. Brothers and sisters, this is the Lord's goal for you. That you would have one mind focusing on the things that he has done in his great Messiah. The goal of the Lord and establish a messianic throne, a reign, a king, in making his people a kingdom so that they could be given to a king, the possession of a king, to say, We belong to him. The goal of that is his glory and our joy. We think of it as an insult, a shame, a dishonor to belong to someone, and that is true in most cases. But to belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah of God, is the greatest honor you could have. Now it is a humbling honor because it's a gracious one. It's not one you deserve. It's based fully on what he deserves. But it is an honor and it is a sweet joy. The goal of the Lord in establishing a messianic throne is the joy of his people and his glory. Joy and feasting went together in the scriptures. God loves his people gathering to feast. He loves their joy, and it's not ungodly to celebrate with food which comes with the Lord's provision. But food isn't the point. The point is joy. The gifts of wine and the finest meats and and treats like cakes of figs. These are things... Which are not essential for nourishment, but they are for the pleasure of eating. Those things were meant to turn God's people's attention to the rich joy of being the people who have them have, have God as their covenant God, and who are given to a Messiah to accomplish their covenant responsibilities. Now staying alive not like just not going to hell that's not a good enough description of salvation. So and so was declared not guilty end of story. It is true. He didn't go to hell. That's true of a saved person. But it doesn't even come close to describing the results of salvation. Feasting comes close. Joy, the joy which was between the the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, in eternity past, is now the joy of the people of God in Jesus Christ because he took on flesh to join the family of David, to become an heir of David so that he could be the covenant head of the people of God to keep the covenant of God in their place so that we would live by his righteousness. We would be rewarded for his righteousness. And he takes the curse for our unrighteousness so that we might enjoy his relationship of joy with God the Father that he had from eternity past. So it's not even close to sufficient to describe Jesus' relationship with God the Father as, how would you describe it? How would you describe God's relationship with Jesus? Well, they don't fight. Yes, that's true, but it's not even close to describing. But love overflowing and rich joys and feasting, that comes close. And so is the joy that is the result of the great Messiah's work the joy of the Lord. Because he establishes a stronghold and is himself our refuge, our rock, our stronghold, our strong city. Now it's his responsibility as our great Messiah to be the one who ensures that the covenant is kept and fulfilled so that rather than judgment, his people can forever delight in the glory of the Lord their God. And brothers and sisters, There is a time, like those mighty men who joined David before his kingdom was fully established, that was pointed out in our chapters that we read. While he was still on the run from Saul, while he was a fugitive, while he was in exile, he was already anointed by the Lord. And while he was in exile, they joined themselves to him. There was a time when the people of the Messiah, and there is a time when the people of the Messiah belong to him while awaiting the full glory of his kingship. Where it is costly to belong to him. And even in the eyes of the world, a shame to belong to him. Where it looks very unsafe. It looks nothing like a stronghold to belong to him. Even though it's a sweet joy, it is costly now to belong to him. That's true for us now, as Jesus has been anointed, and he reigns now from heaven, but there will certainly come a time when the Messiah is visibly crowned and reigns from the earth, and all eyes will see that he is Lord and confess to him that he is their king whether they love him or not. When the Messiahship of the Lord Jesus will be in full bloom. And for those people who belong to him through suffering, they will certainly enjoy the rich joy of the feast of the Messiah, the marriage feast of the Lamb, when the head and the body are united in fullness. When the bride, the church, is presented without spot or blemish to her covenant head, who paid for her holiness and joy with his own blood, and who reigned over all things to gather her and keep her and protect her and bring her into the joy of his kingdom. And we learn from David's reign and responsibility that this is the responsibility of the Lord's Messiah. And he will certainly keep it. So do not lose heart. And do not be tempted to give up your confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He who promised is faithful and he will surely do it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you did not leave salvation up to a bunch of individuals individually responsible for owning their own salvation and taking that upon themselves. What a mess that would have been. But we thank you for the honor, although it's a humble honor, of being given to a king, to be his possession, to belong to him, so that he would have the responsibility to save us, to redeem us, to glorify you in us, to hold us, to establish a stronghold, a refuge of safety for us, and to guarantee our joy in you. And we're grateful for that Messiahship of David, how good that was for your people. But Lord, we are grateful that his son, Jesus, Jesus, reigns more perfectly and gives a stronger refuge and a greater righteousness and a perfect and more enduring joy. And we thank you for the messiahship of the Lord Jesus Christ and the honor of being his people. Lord, open our eyes to see that glory. Help us to hold on to our faith in the Messiah, in his gospel, while we are now in a time of exile. And Lord, help us to live as his children, as if we do not belong to ourselves, because hallelujah, we don't. I pray that you do these things in Jesus' name.